Join me in Matthew chapter 4, if you will. Matthew chapter 4. One of the enormous, enormous challenges of church leadership is to unify the people behind a single motive for participation and involvement in the work of Jesus Christ. Um, that is a challenge because, frankly, I can think of five different motives that prevail in most churches or in many churches uh, in this particular day. I'll outline those in just a moment, but if that's the case, then it's very possible to have a congregation where 20% want uh, participation and involvement for uh, one reason, and 20% for another, and 20% for another, 20% for another. In other words, you've got five different groups that are motivated by five different reasons. My first pastorate was motivated by three. I actually, in a social and group, uh, social dynamics way, pastored three congregations under the same roof. And it was hard to get them together. In fact, the secret was to have two of them happy at one time so they would form a buttress against the third. Is how that happened. And, and I don't know, that may be the fault of church leadership through the years. Maybe we've risen, uh, presented some expectations and motives that are unworthy of the gospel of Christ. But if you can imagine a congregation being divided by these five different motives for participation that are under the surface, then you can imagine the challenge and difficulty of that. It reminds me, the first time Michelle asked me for a bite of my sandwich, she, she took it and 20% came back. Same happens with a Snickers bar. This 20% comes back. Well, it's terribly unsatisfying. I mean, quite frankly, you can get more satisfaction from an escaped llama who's more generous than that. Well, there are several motives. One happens to be the controller. This person is very intense about tradition and ritual because they fear chaos. Uh, they grew up perhaps in a home that was full of chaos where they were told not to speak, not to say anything. And there may be even some, some uh, harshness and, and some abuse involved in that. That's not to say everyone that likes tradition has had those problems, but that's not unusual. And then there's the contortionist. This person contorts the Christian faith by assuming the Bible is not enough, and so they start adding personal opinions and preferences and rules to the Christian faith that others have got to observe and staff have got to guard. This person oftentimes is motivated by a fear of contamination. And then there's the consumer. I hope this is dying, but it's very prevalent in many places. And that is, they expect the church to be a place that manufactures religious products to satisfy them, and, and they shop churches. And when one church no longer meets their need or their brand is no longer sold, or if the price goes up in the church, they find another store, another church. They're, motiv they're motivated uh, about churches the same way some people are motivated by store. And so they're looking for their needs to be met. And then there's the clubber. This person oftentimes is motivated to have events because they're afraid of boredom. And then there's the compromiser. This person will reduce the Christian faith or hide or obscure it and revise it and fail to present Jesus Christ in all of His furious and gracious majesty. Now, they're nervous when the pastor preaches on repentance or on hell. Some of them may be nervous when he preaches on the outrageous grace and joy of God. They, they want the message reduced, and they are afraid of becoming irrelevant. Well, whenever we cater to these kinds of things, what happens is, is that you end up dividing a congregation. You end up dividing a people, and because you can only address their motive 20% of the time, and so there is enormous dissatisfaction. 
The good news is Jesus Christ offers a better way, and that is the Christian motive. That is to magnify Jesus Christ, and if we are all unified in that motive, to magnify Him and to be on mission with Him, indeed, we then can be magnif- uh, unified. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, uh, we find the beginning of this uh, better in superior motive. Chapter 4, verse 1 says that after Jesus' baptism, He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The word tempted can be variously translated depending on its context in the New Testament. Uh, The word tempted is like the word can in English. You can use the word can in at least three ways. It's symbolized by the statement, I can can a can of peaches. I can can a can of peaches. I am able to preserve a jar of peaches. But you can use the word can three times in one sentence and be entirely legitimate, though all all uses of the word can there have uh, entirely different meanings. The same is true when it comes to tempted. Uh, Here in the text, it would be very, really, frankly, inappropriate to translate it tempted, as most English versions do, because God does not lead anyone into temptation. Uh, He does not lead anyone to sin. He does not originate or plan anyone's sin. He did not ordain the fall, for example. Here, it's better to translate it test. He led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. And so in the wilderness here, where Jesus is tested by the devil, Jesus is exposed for who he is. And whenever we go through temptation and tests, we are exposed for who we are. We're an awful lot like sponges. And when we are squeezed, what comes out of us is what was first in us. Jesus here in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 was squeezed and what was in him came out of him. Now, here in Matthew chapter 4, we have the story of Satan tempting Jesus with these three temptations. And when Satan squeezed Jesus with this test, victory gushed forth from him. Beginning in verse 2, when he, Jesus, fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you're the Son of God, as God had said back in verse 15 of chapter 3, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Well, Jesus had quoted the scripture, and this devil says, well, if you're going to go biblical on me, let me go biblical on you. And he misquotes the scripture like most people today misquote Matthew 7, 1. In verse 7, Jesus said to him, it's written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And I would have you note, Jesus did not challenge his authority to do so. At that time, Satan possessed them. Then Jesus said to him in verse 10, Away with you, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. 
The Christian motive is to magnify Jesus regardless. Magnify Jesus whether I'm satisfied. Magnify Jesus in my service whether my needs are met. Magnify Jesus in my service whether I appreciate the events, the calendar, the budget. Magnify Jesus no matter what comes, no matter come what may, I'm going to magnify Him. And the point I'd like to make this morning is Jesus deserves our service because when He was tested, He passed them all. Now, why say this? Well, let me give you several words here that will summarize this text and the worth and the, the worth of Jesus Christ. The first word is adversity. Jesus passed the test under adverse circumstances. Now, Adam was in the Garden of Eden in the pristine environment that we've never seen. Only he and God saw, and he still fell into sin. Israel was in the wilderness and fell to temptation and sin. And then the Hebrew children got into the promised land that flowed with milk and honey, and they felt so poorly that God had to expel them from the land. But here in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was alone. Jesus was hungry. Jesus had been fasting 40 days, and yet he passed the test. Jesus had the least favorable conditions when compared to Israel, the Hebrew children, and Adam, and still passed the test. When you serve Jesus because he deserves it, you serve him whose integrity stayed intact despite his environment and despite his circumstances. Adversity. But there's a second word. And that is humanity. Humanity. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 says, When Christ came in the flesh, God came in flesh in Christ, He emptied Himself and took the form of a servant. In other words, as God, when He came and was born in Bethlehem, He set aside, not as deity, He was always God while on the earth, but He set aside the free exercise of all of His powers. And so he stilled storms and raised the dead and healed the sick and returned sight to the blind and speech to the mute, not by the fact that he was God. He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus lived every aspect of his life on the earth as other humans had to live it and did not take advantage of his powers of deity. He emptied himself, Philippians 2.6 says. He remained God, but he restrained the powers of deity, and lived like the perfect man as Adam was supposed to do so. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. It reminds me of the young man that was to be ordained, and they gathered an ordination council for him. And someone asked, well, tell us the story of the Good Samaritan. And here's how he recounted the story of the Good Samaritan, this young preacher. He said, once there was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked him. And as he went on, he didn't have any money, and he met the queen of Sheba, and she gave him ten talents of gold and a thousand changes of clothing. And he got into a chariot, and he drove furiously. And when he was driving under a big juniper tree, his hair caught on a limb of that tree, and he hung there many days and nights. And the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink, and he ate 5,000 loaves and two fish. One night when he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah came along and cut off his hair. And he dropped, and he fell on stony ground. But he got up, and he went on, and it began to rain, and it rained 40 days and 40 nights. And he hid himself in a cave, and he lived on locust and wild honey. 
And then he went on till he met a servant who said, Come take supper at my house. And so he did. And he ate enough for twelve apostles and the twelve tribes of Israel. After the supper, he went on and came on down to Jericho. And when he had gotten there, he looked up and saw old Queen Jezebel sitting down way up high in a window. And she laughed at him, and he said, Throw her down. And they threw her down seventy times seven. And the fragments that remained there, they picked up twelve baskets full, besides women and children. And they said, Blessed are the peacemakers, P-I-E-C-E, the peacemakers. Now, whose wife do you think she'll be on the judgment day? Well, one fellow sitting there said, I'm impressed. I make a motion. We ordain him. (laughs) Now, I'm going somewhere with this. And that is, in order for this story to strike you as odd or a little humorous, you have to know the Bible. This is an amalgamation of stories from Genesis to Revelation that bear no resemblance to the story of the Good Samaritan at all. What I want you to notice here is that in the text, Jesus knew obscure passages from the Word of God. Look look what he did in verse number (coughs) 4. He responded to the devil, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone but upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Here, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Then in verse 7, he, uh, he uh, quotes the Scripture and says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6, 16. And then he quotes verse number 10, Deuteronomy 6, 16, or 6 13. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. In other words, Jesus ended up quoting Scripture when tempted because He needed to handle temptation the same way every human does. You see, Jesus did not was not merely someone who appeared as human. Jesus really was human and set the example. And there's a great application here for us. Whenever we are tempted, we should be able to answer every temptation with a Scripture verse. Psalms 119.11, your word I've hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. And so Jesus uh, was very faithful to Awana when he was a kid. And so he was able to quote Bible verses whenever he was tempted. So when Jesus, when we serve Jesus because he deserves it, you serve one who as a man looked to the Father for all of his needs and did not take advantage of his deity to do so. The third word is vulnerability, verses 2 through 4. Again, Jesus is hungry, and he has fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And the devil tempts him to get into the bread business. The devil does it with churches all the time. He'd like for them to set aside the scripture and leave the prodigal in the pen and never get the boy home. But here, Jesus prioritized fasting and prayer and holiness, and he waited on God to meet his needs just like all other humans had to wait on God. Now, when you serve Jesus because He deserves it, you serve the one who sacrificed to guard the priority of eternal things. Jesus had His priority straight. And when you serve Him because He deserves it, you serve someone who prioritized the eternal things. There's a fourth word, and that is the word modesty. Jesus chose modesty over the spectacular. Now, verses 6 and 7 Satan urged him to throw himself off the temple. 
That would have been anywhere from four to 700 feet, depending on where he was on the temple. And to uh, do so, trusting that God would send an angel and rescue him before he crashed and broke his body on the ground. And Jesus has already quoted the scripture from Deuteronomy 8, and so the devil quotes it right back to him. Now, he takes it out of context, again, like most people do Matthew 7, 1, and he quotes it right back to him. But Jesus has a very clear view of what the scripture means, and he uses it appropriately, and he uses it rightly. In other words, uh, with the bread, Satan is tempting Jesus to go into the bread business, but here he's tempting him to go into show business. And for his ministry to become nothing more than a show, to do the spectacular, to entertain. And I mean, the temple's crowded with people, and they see Jesus fling himself off, and an angel come and rescue him. Well, then, what kind of following could he gather with that spectacular display? But Jesus did not use his powers that way. Jesus did not impress others with spectacular works unnecessarily. When he drew attention to himself, it was for the kingdom, and it was for salvation. So Jesus was not a needy narcissist. When you serve Jesus because he deserves it, you serve the one who did not grovel for approval. But there's a fifth word, and that is difficulty. Jesus passed the test by taking the most difficult route. Now, I know, uh, knew of a teenager one time that wanted to change Sunday school classes from one to the other. Um, this teenager would have been in the same class with the same teacher for a third year and really didn't expect much from that and sat down and talked with the youth minister, talked with parents, and after thinking through some of the challenges and difficulties that might pose to others, the teacher and, and to herself, decided to stay in that same Sunday school class despite some of the challenges and difficulties. And, and when, when I reflect on that, it reminds me that usually the way of Jesus is a way that appears at first as the most difficult. And that's what we find here in the text. Look, look at verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, now, Jesus is going to inherit all these things anyway. One day when he comes back, but he will do so because he was obedient to death, even death on the cross. And he earned and he merited all the kingdoms of the world by dying on the cross. Satan is offering him these things here without a cross. The price Jesus has to pay, though, is look, what? At the end of verse 9, fall down and worship me. In other words, what Satan is offering Jesus here is that he is offering him his specialty, a crown without a cross. <coughs> and, that, and that's what he's offering him here. That is precisely what Satan specializes in, a kingdom without death. He's giving Jesus a way to completely miss the cross on which he would die. Now listen, if Jesus had bowed in worship before Satan, he would have never gotten up. Oh, maybe physically, but not spiritually. He would have become a sinner and an idolater. And there'd be no redemption for the world, but at the very least, they wouldn't, there wouldn't be any nail prints in his hands or his feet either. 
He could have missed that. But instead, Jesus chose to, to take a kingdom and a crown by enduring the cross. God's way usually appears to be the most difficult way when we are tempted. The way of temptation usually appears to be the easiest and the most reasonable way. But Jesus had a clear view of what he was viewing and he chose the most difficult way. When you serve Jesus because he deserves it, you serve the one who chose what appeared to be the most difficult way because it was God's way and he trusted him. The sixth word is this, and that is the word sympathy. Jesus has unbounded sympathy for those of us who are failures. And by the way, do you know God's never really expected anything from our own power and our own wisdom, even if it's collective, other than failure? That's all God's ever expected of us. Without the power of Christ and trust in Him, all we can expect is failure. And that's why I turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about Jesus and his temptations. And here's what it says. It explains how he's our representative before God, and he does the work between us and God to make things acceptable and appropriate for us to approach him. It says in verse 15 of Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, Yet without sin, yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and receive grace to help in the time of need. So Jesus runs, if I can put it this way, Jesus runs interference between us and the Father. He prepares the way. He gets everything ready for us to approach the Heavenly Father. And then he escorts us into his presence as a faithful high priest. And he does so without sin. He was tempted in all points as we are, but never, ever sinned. He grew up in a household of at least eight people, maybe more, and still never sinned. He had to deal with the 12 disciples, and he still never sinned. He had to deal with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were profoundly and grossly misguided, and still never sinned. And for this reason, we can approach the throne of grace boldly, as if we belong there. We can approach God as if we belong in His presence and obtain mercy and receive grace to help in the time of need because Jesus was without sin. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute, there's no way I can relate to this. How can anyone that's never sinned ever sympathize with me and even care and not be embarrassed or put off by me? Well, that's not very difficult to understand. Think about this for just a moment. At what point, well, let's just imagine this. Let's just imagine that after five minutes of temptation, you can expect yourself to capitulate and give in to the temptation. I mean, it may be half a chocolate cake. It may be speed limit. It may be something else. I don't know. Whatever it may be. But after five minutes, you capitulate to temptation. Well, you cannot know what it's like then to resist temptation for an hour. Can you imagine after an hour the force and the pull and the vigor of temptation after holding off for an hour? I mean, if you're always capitulating after five minutes, you would never know what it's like. So you do not know the force of temptation after an hour if you're capitulating at five minutes. Friends, Jesus did not resist temptation for merely an hour. 
He resisted temptation and overcame all of them after 33 years. So Jesus knows the force of 33 years of temptation. Let me tell you, not only can Jesus sympathize with the temptations you have faced, frankly, he's about the only one that really understands them. He knows the full force and brunt. And here's, your, here's his invitation to you. Come boldly to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. Not when you're pure, but in the time of need. Not when you're righteous, but in the time of need. Not when your performance has been impressive, but in the time of need. Not when you're having your best day, but in the time of need. Come boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and receive grace to help in the time of need. And there's a wonderful, wonderful thing that takes place when you do. When you come to Christ, or the day that you did, wherever you may be today, your spirit was unified with the spirit of Jesus Christ. And according to 1 Corinthians 1.17, you became one spirit with him. One spirit unified. In other words, Jesus is willing to go to that extent to be unified with you in every sorrow, every trial, every temptation, every failure, and to walk through them all. You talk about sympathy. Does it get any better than that? And then Galatians 2.20 says, Paul says about all of us, not just himself, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives actively in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, Jesus is willing to step in and be your substitute, not only for your sins, but in all your temptations as well. And he's willing to give you victory and power and to defeat them himself. But you've got to know him. Now that leads us to two possible decisions today. One, start your union with Christ today. If you are not one with him, he's inviting you to do so today. You've got to be honest, though. You've got to start with honesty. You can't exaggerate before God and he'd be impressed. You've got to admit that you're not one with him now. And you've got to trust that by faith and his cross and resurrection, you can be made one with him. And then you've got to ask him, and he promises, understanding all of this, knowing all of this, ask it shall be given, seek you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened to you. Start a union with Christ today, and we want to help you with that today. We'll sing a song in just a moment. Our staff will be standing here. Step out from where you are and start a union with Jesus Christ today. But then, some of you have already done that. And you don't need to start it, but you need to strengthen it. And simply, we do that by obeying Him in faith. Now, that could have 400 different implications for the 400 of you. I understand that. But do whatever it is that God wants you to do today in these moments. Follow Him in baptism because you've already started your union. Become part of this church. Surrender to missionary service or to ministry. Give a burden over to God. Let some bitterness or resentment go. Rearrange your priorities. I don't know what it may be for you, but make that decision today to strengthen your union with Him. And when you do, He will meet you with power every time. He promises to do so.
Let's pray about it. Would you stand with me, please, and let's pray. Dear God, we want to thank you for the victory that is in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that Jesus is still willing to say the battle is the Lord's. He's still willing to say, cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He'll never permit the righteous to be shaken. Thank you that we can call on him and he can glorify his name. Thank you, oh God, for that opportunity. And thank you that there is no reason for failure on anyone's part here today. I do pray for friends that, Lord, need to start that union today. I pray they will. Let them open up their hearts in faith and trust and humility to Jesus. And others that need to strengthen that union with him. Would you help them to do that today by obedience in his name? Now again, we're going to sing a song. And as we do, why don't you step out from where you are? Meet one of our staff here. We'll be very, very happy to help you with any decision that you need to make today. I'm going to finish my prayer, and we're going to ask you to come. Lord, I do want to ask that during these moments, every word of our mouth and every meditation of our heart will be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You come.